I think sometimes people are like, oh, in order to do data science, I have to be a data scientist. And it's like, well, you don't have to be a mathematician to do math. It's the same way. You can start doing data science as an engineer, as an accountant. Like you don't necessarily need the title at all to do data science. And I think, I think you're right. People miss that. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors, the podcast where I bring in fascinating people from my world, talk about life, data science, sports analytics, content creation, and much, much more. I'm your host, Ken G. If you haven't already, we'd greatly appreciate it if you gave us a rating and followed the show. It helps us to continue to bring in incredible guests. Ken's Nearest Neighbors is powered by Z by HP, HP's high compute, workstation grade line of products and solutions. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Avery Smith. Avery is on a mission to help working professionals break into data science. He also is completely obsessed with data. He has a dashboard to track his iPhone app usage, and he even analyzes his dog's Fitbit data. Avery is the creator of Data Career Jumpstart and the founder of Snow Data Science. In this episode, we learn about how Avery first fell in love with data science, the risk-reward trade-off that he analyzed when he considered leaving a good corporate job to start his own consulting company and about how you can use your brand to start a company or land at the job of your dreams. I hope you enjoy the episode. I know I enjoyed our conversation. Avery, thank you so much for coming on the Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast. We actually met in kind of a funny turn of fate where you sent me over an invite to Clubhouse pretty early on, and we got acquainted then. And, you know, looking back, I'm like, that's such an awesome way to, to like make a connection with someone. It's just like, hey, I have this value that I'm providing uh, to be part of this group. Like, why don't you do it without asking for anything in return uh, just because you had it and, and that availability. And so like early on first 15 seconds of this, uh, of this talk, we're already getting a lesson and some wisdom for you. So again, thank you for coming in. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, too bad Clubhouse is kind of dead now. I mean, <laughs> didn't work out super well, did it? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it depends on what, uh, you know, kind of what niches you're you're working in and, Something that I've realized related to content is that the things that are have been around tend to stay around, even if it's something like Facebook, where the demographic has changed, but it's still definitely around. Obviously, I cater to YouTube because, you know, aside from being a video platform, it's also the second biggest search engine on the internet. And so, you know, it, it's it's awesome to get into some of these things early, and it's fun to be able to interact, but. Uh, it's different when you're thinking about how to grow a business or how to make the maximum impact or, or how to, you know, connect with as many people as possible on that front. Yeah, for sure. I, I totally agree. It'll, it'll stick around somehow and transform and change. It'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to kind of seeing what that journey looks like. So I'd love to get, uh, you know, for, for the listeners, for them to understand a little bit more about you. And the first place that I usually start on this podcast is with where you first got interested with data or where you first realized that data was a, you know, was a career that you wanted to pursue. Um, yeah. So I have kind of an interesting story. Um, my, when I started college, I knew I really liked math and I knew I really liked chemistry. And so I chose to be a chemical engineer. Um, that was my major. But my dad actually was like, hey, there's this thing called machine learning. You should learn about it. And he'd always send me all these articles and like these YouTube videos. Um, but I was just like, 
a college student. And as a college student, you just don't listen to your dad. That's like what you're supposed to do is whatever your dad says is uncool. And so just don't pay attention to it. Um, so I, I didn't, I kind of just ignored him. Um, and I, I went the chemical engineering route. Uh, I took a couple programming classes, really liked the programming classes. And eventually I found myself at a, a little company called VaporSense um, that does chemical sensors. And they had a data scientist on staff. And so that was my first time actually meeting a data scientist. I got to talk to him and understand a little bit what, what he did, but I was just in the lab. I didn't really get to do any of the data science parts, but that's kind of my first exposure into data science. That's awesome. And so from, from that, what was your impression? You know, is, was it like, oh, wow, immediately this is so cool. My dad was right all along. Or was it like, oh, I don't really know what this guy's doing. It seems interesting. I'm going to ask a little bit more. I'm going to maybe do a little bit more of this work. What does that process look like? Well, from the little programming classes I had taken, I'd taken maybe two programming classes. This is probably my sophomore year. I've taken two programming classes. I just know I love programming. I'm like, wow, programming super cool. I'm really into programming. But at the same time, like I, I think about changing my major to CS and I look at the classes and there's kind of like this, like, uh, I don't remember the term, but like, it's this class that's really hard that like basically discourages you from taking the program and you have to build Excel basically from scratch. And I'm like, that's stupid. Like, why do I want to build Excel from scratch? Like, I don't want to build pointless things as a programmer. I want to build cool things as a programmer. Um, and so I think that's kind of where I saw data as like, oh, this is like applied programming and you actually provide value from it. And, and that's really cool. And I think I didn't realize how important it was until that data scientist actually quit. So we didn't have a data. We tried to find a new data scientist for like six months and we couldn't find anyone. They were just expensive. They were hard to find. And we just kept piling up all this data and like no one had the power to do any sort of analysis with it. And that's like our whole company was based around being able to tell what chemicals is in the air and how much of that chemical is present. And when you didn't have the data scientists there to do it, you really didn't have a product. And I was like, oh crap, this stuff's really important apparently. Awesome. And so is that how you started to transition into the data science career? I'd love to hear kind of the arc of your career journey starting from there. Yeah, that's exactly how is, is this data scientist quit. And I was in the lab testing the chemicals. So it was actually a pretty cool job. I got to touch like a bunch of drugs and a bunch of explosives and like test them on the chemicals or on our sensors, because that's kind of the application of our sensors. And so that was pretty cool, but I wasn't the best at it. And I was kind of getting bored and a little bit frustrated. And so one day, especially because the data scientist wasn't there, I was just like making all of this data with no analysis. And so one day I was like, all right, you know what? I've taken a couple of programming classes. I've taken a stats class. I'm how hard can it be? I'm just going to try to figure this out on my own. And without my boss's permission, I started to write a program in actual in MATLAB. And that would basically take the data that I was producing and do some basic data analysis. It was mostly like automation. It was basically like at like the 30th minute, take the standard deviation of the last two minutes and take the max of the next minute and give me a signal to noise ratio. And it was super basic, but I, I wrote it in MATLAB. I didn't tell my boss. And then when I was done, I like tested it out, made sure it worked. And I showed my boss and I was like, hey, um, I basically made this program that takes the analysis and does what used to take me like an hour in 10 seconds. Is this useful? And he was like, oh yeah, this is pretty useful. This is pretty cool. Um, thanks for making this. 
And I was like, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Can I do more of this? And he was like, uh, okay, sure. And so my time as I was at the time, I was kind of like a, a lab intern or an engineering intern. And my time kind of shifted from half being in the lab to half writing these programs that would save us time in the analysis at our company. Um, and eventually it went 60, 40, and then it went 70, 30, and then 80, 20. And then eventually I was just doing programming and data analysis for this company. Um, and we actually didn't even end up hiring anyone for a really long time. I just kind of became the new data scientist and I wasn't that good at it, you know, as I started, but every day I got a little bit better and, uh, I ended up providing a lot of value for this company. And that and that's how I got started was <laughs> this this crappy little program I wrote kind of on the side in MATLAB. Yeah. Well, I, I think at a high level, I always describe data scientists as being problem solvers and the the tools that they use are or whatever it is, MATLAB, Python R. Um, and the problems that we're facing are ones that are are relevant for data in the domain. And to me, you did exactly what what a data scientist would do in that situation is you looked and assessed what could save you time. You looked and assessed what the best opportunities were in that space and you took action. And I think a lot of people don't realize that there are often opportunities in your current job to apply some analytics, to use programming, to automate some of your tasks, to make your life easier. And if there are other people in your role, if there are other people doing similar things, something that makes your life easier might also make someone else's life easier. And as long as your bosses aren't telling you no, um, it doesn't hurt to tinker around and and like create products that are valuable. Often the things that are created under the radar, whether it's a pricing model or whether it's something else, or whether it's a, an analysis to, to speed up your workflow, those are things that people end up adopting because they're useful, not because it was like created from, or, or like from a, by a call from the higher ops. And I think that that's a really important thing to understand is that if you're creating value for someone, even if it's your coworkers, that's inherently useful. And that can help you to pivot a career that can help you to get a promotion that can help you to um, transition from a data analyst or a chemical engineer to a data scientist. Uh, but a lot of the times we're really focused on the more traditional paths to do these things. And what I've learned from so many podcast interviews is that the traditional path is is not like the most common path. And if you're looking at how many data scientists have gotten into data science from a purely traditional path, which I don't even know what that would be, maybe like computer science and statistics, whatever it is, like the amount that have gone from a non-traditional path, it outnumbers them 10 to one, which I think is pretty incredible to think about. Yeah, it is, it is crazy. Like you look at all these people that, you know, are are talking about data science on, on LinkedIn or YouTube. And, you know, most of them don't have that undergrad you'd really, you know, expect them to have. And you're totally right that it's really, it's really these like side projects that end up getting a lot of people, you know, giving them a taste and then getting them addicted and then just continuing the side projects that ends up, you know, completing the path into uh, a data scientist. And I I actually kind of hate the term data scientist because uh, I think sometimes people are like, oh, in order to do data science, I have to be a data scientist. And that's like, well, you don't have to be a mathematician to do math. It's the same way. You can start doing data science as an engineer, as an accountant. Like you don't necessarily need the title at all to do data science. And I think, I think you're right. People miss that. I, I love that high level like concept, right? Is that I, I've always viewed it like this. Data science to me is a tool, 
regardless of what profession I am, like what my background is, that tool can be useful to me in some way. I mean, before I was like called a data scientist, I mean, I don't even know what I'm called now, but, um, you know, I was doing, I was using data science techniques. I was using linear regression. I was using some of these things to try and understand the sports that I was interested in better. Was I a data scientist then? Absolutely not. Was I using data science techniques to help me understand that domain? 100% absolutely. So that, that like naming convention should never be a barrier for us to do fun things. I mean, I talked on the podcast a couple of weeks ago with a 16 year old kid who's using advanced computer vision, all these types of crazy things and, and doing very public projects. And he, he doesn't think he's a data scientist. He's like, yeah, I'm a high schooler. I do these projects for fun and, and it's f- fun for the community and whatever it is. But the projects are very high level. They're really good. And they're public facing. And, and you know, he doesn't, it's not about what he's called. It's about what he does. And I think that is one benefit of this kind of software and data domain is over time, I expect it's going to trend more to what you do rather than what you're called or what school you, you went to and whatever it might be. Um, Cause coming from consulting, it was the opposite. It's like, if you didn't go to a target school, you're not going to get an interview at my company. If you didn't do X, Y, Z, you know, like the political side of things really, really took precedence. And, uh, one of the reasons why I didn't love it and I, and I ended up getting out, but, <laughs> but yeah, you're so right. It's, uh, and it's awesome. It's like democratizing, you know, the, the ability to improve your life. And if you are able to prove that you can do the things that you say you can via a project, like you said, a public facing project, I'm really big on, on portfolios, right? Like having an online portfolio and showing employers, showing, you know, companies, Hey, this is what I can do. These are my skills. You don't believe me, like check out these past projects I've done that can really change your life. Um, I mean, I think that's so much better than a one page resume. Like you can either have a one page resume or you could have a website with tons of hyperlinks, tons of pictures, tons of videos, tons of words explaining your work. And as an, like as an employer now, like what do I prefer? Like I, would I rather learn from someone's website or from someone's one page PDF? And the answer every time is, well, probably a little bit of both, but I much rather prefer the website if I have to choose one. Um, so yeah, doing projects that are public facing, building in public is such an important thing that can really change your life. Yeah. Well, I do. I want to add a little nuance to your point there and feel free to disagree with me here. I really believe that you, you need to be creating things that match the medium that you're communicating on. You know, so if, if you're sending in, uh, like applying for a job and they are asking for a resume, yes, you put a resume, right. But if you're reaching out to someone, uh, like cold emailing them, uh, it might make sense to send your portfolio website or just one specific project that they might find really interesting. And it's finding exactly, okay, I have a lot of content. I've made it interesting. I've applied good elements of storytelling. I have a lot of these things. What is the best like piece of content to send this person on this specific medium? Creating that match in my mind is what creates that next level jump to like uh, increasing the probability that someone gets back to you, that someone uh, either uh, like tells you to apply for a job or wants to communicate more or even be friends with you. Uh, it's all about the messaging. And you're so right. Like if you do have a website that is well built out, it, it shows your work rather than tells your work. That gives you so many more tools to pick apart, to be able to send as independent messages across a ton of different platforms and channels. Um, and, you know, I, I really, I think you're right, but uh, there always is that a little nuance I wanted to, to follow up with. Yeah, that that's a great point. Obviously, um, you don't want to just like one 
a hammer for everything you see, you know, um, and tailoring, even tailoring, like you said, tailoring your projects to what industry or what job you're interested in. That's so powerful. I, when people like asking what project that they should do, I always encourage them to say, okay, pick a company, think about what keeps them up at night. You know, what, what are their issues? And then try to solve that issue. And of course, you're probably not going to solve it perfectly, but even the process of just going through that whole, okay, this is what this company's issues are. This is how data could support it. This is like a solution I could come up with. It's such a good exercise for you just to like understand that company's ins and outs. And also it shows that you actually care. You know, it shows that like, hey, I have initiative. I can, I can solve problems. And as, you know, someone who's, who's hiring, that, that's very valuable. You know, that's something you want to see in the interview process. So yeah, definitely want to tailor, tailor your stuff. I don't know if you saw this the other day. This kind of went viral on LinkedIn. There's some college student, and I'm forgetting your name, college student, so I'm so sorry. Um, but she was applying. She, she doesn't even have that great of a GPA. I think she has like a 3.0 GPA, which is, which, is, which is fine, right? But it's not like amazing. And she wanted to work for Spotify and she ended up landing this job at Spotify, spoiler alert, but she submitted her resume and designed it completely to look exactly like the, the Spotify UI. Like it looks like you're, when you're looking at your resume, you feel like you're looking at Spotify. And that was a great example of, you know, tailoring your resume to a job you want. And it worked out for her. That's incredible. Uh, you know, something one of my friends, Jeff Lee had, uh, I'd learned from him during the interview process was this idea of the briefcase method, which is something that you, you know, borderline just articulated with the designing a project for a specific company. And that's when you go in and you interview, you bring just a one pager of essentially the things that you described. So you outline the project, you scope it, you talk about the requirements and, and the issues and the types of models you would use. And you essentially pitch a company, a project that you had developed based on thinking about the problems that they might have. So you're coming in very proactively. They're not just asking you what types of problem, you know, how to solve this problem, which is a very common approach in a behavioral or more technical interview is like, you know, we're, we're doing this. How would you go about solving it? What methodology would you use? But you're telling them that I went this step further. I thought about the problems you might have. And I went through and I like built this out. It might be completely off base. It might be wrong. But that extra effort and the, to show that you're thinking about the business need and you're thinking about the business is something that people constantly overlook in the process, right? If you apply to 100 companies, like what stands out between one company and another at that point, right? There, there's so much in your brain. There's so much backlog. But if you're able to really focus on a couple and tailor that entire experience, not just the resume, uh, the entire interview process, your projects, the whole thing, your odds go up like exponentially, like majorly exponentially. Um, oh yeah. And it, it makes you stand out, right? Yeah. And that's what we want to do. I think some, so many people are scared that they'll stand out in a negative way. Oh, I didn't come from this major. And I'm like, well, you know, you have, you have a really unique major that I haven't seen in this field. They're at least going to look at your resume, right? They're, they're, they're like, if they keep seeing the same thing, you're not differentiated, but you know, you, yeah, I talked to, uh, uh, Hyun Park, who's, whose episode's going to come out soon, uh, Hyun, Hyun Park. And uh, he, he came from a women and gender studies background. Oh, wow. And to me, it's like, well, you know, that's fascinating. What could he take from that domain and apply to this data field? How is that perspective from that background going to be different and, and to shape his views and thoughts? And from an employment perspective, assuming the other criteria are met, that's something that is a benefit because they're different. We don't want a bunch of carbon cop and ro copy robots in our in our business, uh, 
I, I, I don't know. I, I think people just really overlook the nuance associated with these things. Totally. Awesome. So shifting gears a little bit from that position, I'd love to hear about how the rest of your data career unfolded. You know, how you got your next job, what the next step of that process has looked like. Yeah. So while I was, you know, a pseudo data scientist at this small little company, I would never have been able to do that at a big company. It only had about 15 people. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I was able to, after I demonstrated value, I was able to kind of make the jump to that full-time data position. Um, I ended up landing an internship with ExxonMobil, um, big oil major in Houston, Texas, um, and in their research and development arm. So working on problems in their optimization group, trying to help make more efficient oil and cheaper oil and and make more money doing it, right? Of course. Um, Spent a a summer with them, built a really cool project that I I was really proud of that um, you know, they, they thought was going to save them a bunch of money, um, got a return offer and started with ExxonMobil full-time after I graduated. So I spent about a year and a half in this optimization group, working on things like linear models, um, automation of analysis, uh, lots of linear, linear modeling, lots of automation in Python. Um, and then I spent about six months in the actual data science group, working on supply chain problems, trying to automate and forecast things that could make uh, Exxon's life easier and save the company money. Um, and then after six months in that group, so after two years at ExxonMobil, um, I ended up quitting my job and starting my own little analytics firm, um, which I've been doing for, for almost eight months now. Um, so it, it's been an awesome journey. Um, I guess I guess sprinkled in there, I should also mention, at Exxon, uh, while I was at Exxon, I ended up uh, getting, well, I just graduated this week actually, but I started a master's in data analytics yeah. online from Georgia Tech. And I also started freelancing um, in my free time. So I was working, freelancing and doing the master's kind of all on the, on the side. It was it was a fun time in the life of, of Avery. Um, and now it's all kind of cumulate, cumulate or come to here where uh, now I'm, I'm running my, my, my business and I just graduated. Um, so it's, it's been good. Congratulations. I, I don't know if I could have done that same thing. So I did my master's in computer science full-time while I was working and I literally had no time to do anything else, no freelancing, <laughs> anything. So I'm very, very impressed with the, Thanks. With your work ethic and your ability to, to focus through those things. Something I'm interested in as you worked for a company, essentially that where you were the only data person right? You transition in that role, moving into a more formalized, structured company uh, like ExxonMobil, and then now into your your own uh, self-driven work. What have those transitions been like? Has it been easy or were there some things you were like, oh my goodness, this is so different from how I did it before? That's an interesting question. Um, working at a small company, I had I had a big say, you know, there's only 15 different voices in the room. And so I could I could often you know, share my opinion and actually, you know, do things that I felt made a difference. At Exxon, I struggled a lot more with that. Um, obviously, a lot bigger company, you know, 70,000 people, worldwide company, um, and I'm just a little cog in the system. Um, so I, I really struggled with like the culture, just the, the, you just, I just feel like I didn't have as much say, obviously, it's a bigger company. There's lots of flavors of bureaucracy. Um, so I, I really struggled with that dynamic. Um, 
but it was fun to also learn from other people. There's some really smart people at Exxon that I got to learn from and interact with and work with. So that was, that was very fun. I got to learn a lot in that situation because at VaporSense, you know, I, I still got to learn, but I, I didn't learn that much about data because not that many people, and well, no one really knew about data. Um, so I got to learn a little bit more at Exxon, um, but I didn't feel like my work was as meaningful, to be honest. Um, and now transitioning into back to, you know, a one-man company or one man plus some other people every once in a while, um, I'm back to, well, now it's like, whatever I say goes. <laughs> I mean, there's no one there to argue with me other than the client. And that's a lot of responsibility. To be honest, that's that's scary um, because I, you know, I'm really testing my knowledge sometimes. I'll, I'll be honest, I've taken projects sometimes where I literally don't know that much about it, but I'm like, I can figure it out as I go. Um, so that's scary sometimes. There's there's really there's no safety net necessarily in the entrepreneur thing. Um, like if I take a project and I don't know how to do it, I either need to not do it or pay someone else to do it, you know. Um, versus like at Exxon, I could try to network around and try to find some experts in that space. So it's definitely all three have been different dynamics and I've learned a lot from all three of them. That's awesome. And so I would love to to get a little bit more perspective into your shift towards your own business. I know some people gave you quite a bit of, uh, or they didn't quite understand your decision-making process going from, you know, frankly, a well-paying job with a lot of stability to working for yourself. I mean, obviously, I I have some entrepreneurial uh, uh, thoughts or 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 kind of uh, ideas running around in my head constantly. So I personally get it, but I'd love to hear about that process of making that transition. What mechanisms did you set in place? You know, how did you approach going out and working on your own? This episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors is brought to you by Z by HP. HP's high compute workstation-grade line of products and solution. Z is specifically made for high-performance data science solutions, and I personally use the ZBook Studio and the Z4 workstation. I really love that the Z line can come standard with Linux, and they also can be configured with the data science software stack. With the software stack, you can get right into the work of doing data science on day one without the overhead of having to completely reconfigure your new machine. Now back to our show. Um, that's a good question. I always thought that I would start a business someday, um, but I definitely didn't think I would quit my you know high paying job after two years and do it two years after college. It was like much earlier than I thought I would do it. Um, so that came to a surprise to me. I was never really planning on this. It kind of just happened. Um, I guess the way it kind of happened was I was really at Exxon. There was times where I was pretty bored. Um, there was times where my job wasn't as challenging as I would have liked it to be. Um, I, I wasn't given the chance to innovate as much as I wish I could have. I was kind of just, like I said, a cog in the machine at times. And so I, I think I compensated by trying to do cool things outside of work. And one of those things was freelancing. I'm like, man, they're going to pay me to do things I like. That sounds awesome. Um, and so I, I started just taking on some jobs and um, learning new things through freelancing. Um, I actually learned D3 through freelancing. Um, this guy was like, Hey, can you build me a D3 visualization? And I was like, well, I've never done one. So, uh, let's just do 300 bucks and I'll do it. And I mean, anyone who's worked in D3 knows that unless you're an expert, $300 is not enough. This is like a complex interaction dashboard. Um, but it was awesome because I was getting paid to learn, you know, like instead of paying to learn, I was getting paid to learn and it was a lot of fun. And I eventually 
you know, built up my clientele and also built up my personal brand a lot on LinkedIn. I went from like 800 connections to, to like 20,000 followers. Um, and it got to the point where people were asking me, you know, like, Hey, I have this project. Can you do it for me? And I was like, well, I have this other project I'm doing, so I don't really have time. Um, so I kind of had one on one hand, you know, demand for my services building up. Now on the other hand, I was at Exxon and um, this is this is where things might get <laughs> a little controversial. And I, I apologize to anyone from Exxon who's watching or who disagrees with me. But um, I wanted to innovate. I wanted to create things. I wanted to build products. I wanted to provide value. Um, and my, so I, I built this really cool tool at Exxon. And like, literally, it was very, very cool. Um, it was going to save all these engineers a bunch of time worth millions of dollars. And like the amount of loops that I had to jump through, like, oh, this wasn't your job to build this. Oh, like this already exists. I'm like, yeah, but it sucks. And like, this is modern and this is good. Anyways, I was just getting so frustrated. And I realized I had a passion to innovate. I had a passion to create. And I just didn't see that getting fulfilled at Exxon. And so that was kind of on the other hand, what was happening. And so eventually I was like, you know what? I'm going to take a chance on myself. You know, I'm, I'm, I guess I was 24, 25 years old. Um, I, I'm young. I'm going to take a chance. I'm just going to take all these clients, take all their jobs, and we're going to go from there. We're going to quit Exxon and see how it goes. And if it goes terribly, like at least I have all the clients right now. Like I'm not quitting with nothing. Like I already have paid jobs. And if it goes terribly, I can get another job in six months. So that was kind of my thought process. And I, and I made the jump. I love that. I, I think something I really like to focus on is calculated risk. I mean, clearly, like, yes, you took a risk leaving a consistent job, but you had clients lined up, right? It wasn't like you were going to go broke. It wasn't like you had to start from scratch. I mean, that's something that I think is unbelievably important for other people to realize is there's a trade-off between our freedom, our happiness, how much money we make across all of these categories. And you're taking a huge leap in returns on like time freedom and your ability to pursue projects you are very interested in. And that also probably increases happiness, might increase some stress as well. Um, and you weren't taking an unbelievable cut in your finances because you already have um, you already have clients lined up. You already have these things lined up. And whenever anyone's making a decision, I think it's important to realize, hey, what can I do to provide some safety net? So I'm hedging my bets just a little bit as I make this transition. So for example, I went back to school. <clears throat> sorry, I went back to school to get my master's in computer science, right? You know, I'm paying out a lot of money. Um, one of the reasons why I chose computer science over data science is that I thought that if I tried an entrepreneurial endeavor, if I really wanted to give it my best shot, if it failed, if I took computer science, I could go into computer science roles or data science roles if I really needed a job again. You know, and that opened up a lot of doors. Obviously, I had to do the work. I built a lot of portfolio stuff. I networked my butt off. I did a lot of the things that I needed to do to hedge any of the entrepreneurial ventures that I wanted to take. So if I went down this route, I would have connections that could lead to a job. I would have a portfolio that could lead to a job. And I would have some degree certification that could also help with that networking or that job process. So the way I thought about it is anything I do from that point on, uh, I can always fall back on being able to, to create an opportunity for myself um, in, in those other avenues. So that allows me to be more aggressive with entrepreneurship or with content creation or whatever it might be. Uh, even now, uh, fortunately, 
YouTube, my courses, all of these things, they have produced a revenue stream. Uh, definitely not as well as I do as a data scientist. But if I wanted to pursue something other than data science, or I wanted to pursue something other than content, I could because I have that other leg to stand on. And I have some flexibility that I've created for myself there. And so again, realizing that, well, you know, what can I do? What would hedge me to be able to take more risk if I'm risk inclined, like I think both of us are a little bit, is a very powerful skill. Um, and you know, just like you found out on, I think it was TikTok, some people don't think through your risk profile, right? They thought you were just quitting to go, you know, do whatever in the woods, leaving this job for nothing. No, you're leaving this job, but and the risk is high, but the reward, the return on your 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 finances, your your time, your freedom, your happiness, they're all almost so high they're unquantifiable. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I'm actually going to surprise you here. I'm actually very risk adverse. I am, I am not a risk taker. Um, And like in my DNA, like I am very conservative. Like I, I do not take risks. Um, It's just not, not part of my DNA. Um, So this was a terrifying decision for me, you know, to leave my job. Like I had, I owned a home. Um, actually when I quit, this is kind of funny. I owned two homes, not on purpose really, but kind of on accident. Like I had two mortgages. Like I have my wife, I have a dog. Like I was terrified. Um, it's not in my DNA to, to do this type of thing. Um, but I had been, I had been thinking about it for like six months. So I kind of worked my way up to it. I really thought it through. Um, on the wall, I had a piece of paper that said, these are the reasons why I'm starting my own business. So I'd, I'd be reminded every day, like you said, you know, more time flexibility, higher pay in the long term, um, like follow my dream, be innovative, those, those types of things. Um, and another thing that really helped me was a book um, called How I Built This by Guy Ross. I'm, I'm sure some people are familiar with the podcast, um, but I actually, I bought his book and it's basically him talking about all the lessons he learned from interviewing all these entrepreneurs. And one thing he talks about there is, is it dangerous or is it scary? And he likens it to kind of like how, like, we're all scared of sharks, but like the odds of us dying in a shark attack versus getting in a car are like so proportionally, like, but we're not scared to get in a car. And he's like the same thing with business. Sometimes he's like, we might be really scared to quit our jobs, you know, but actually it's more dangerous to stay at a job that you're unhappy in for 20 years, the rest of your life. And just, you just be miserable that's what's truly dangerous. Um, and so his, his paradigm on that really like changed the way I thought. And I realized, oh, especially because I had clients, I had a plan B. I was like, oh, this is just scary. It's actually not that dangerous. And if worse comes to worse, you know, like you said, I have skills, I have a portfolio, I have a personal brand that I could get my, not my old job at Exxon probably, but a very similar job at X or at a different company in seconds, not seconds, in, in months or weeks. And it wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, well, I really like that. It's, you know, perhaps more like reframing risk. So one thing, I can't remember what book I picked it up from, but it was always essentially look at what the worst case scenario is. And if you can deal with the worst case scenario, like, like great, you should 100% do it. Exactly. And, you know, like the worst case, worst case scenario within reality, right? Like, you know, I could, uh, you know, fall down the stairs and, and, get some sort of traumatic brain injury and couldn't do any coding, but that would be like, well, I, there are a lot of other issues with that. Right. But the worst case scenario in most things is like, okay, you know, I I like, uh, my people stop enjoying videos or my, my work doesn't go that well. 
um, those are all reconcilable. Those are all, I still have enough skills. I have enough uh, ability to, to hedge on my own. Uh, and, and that's something people I think need to learn about the data science job space too, is right. Just because you didn't land your ideal data science job doesn't mean that you can't land a data science job still, or sure. it doesn't mean that you can't land a data analyst job or a software engineering job, which is still a really good position. And you can still progress towards a data science job if that's what you really want. Uh, people also don't think past that it, landing the job a lot of the time, right? A lot of people are so excited that they get this job at this great company. And then they're like, wow, I hate this, you know? <laughs> and so yeah. we, we I, I think that there's a lot of value in thinking about that hedged risk or, or, or thinking about the, the other options that are available to you. Because a lot of the times we're basing these decisions based on very few factors, right? How much money you make, where you live, and um, and like how difficult it is to achieve. But there's so many other factors, as you described, freedom, happiness, um, like what you learn, your ability to learn new things that I think, at least for me, are even more important than the finances. Um, and I'm very happy that I was able to see some of those things in some of the past careers that I've had as well and, and to, to move away from them. Uh, I actually did something very similar um, about... I guess it was almost two years ago. I was working as uh, I took some time off from my current company and was working as a product owner um, at a at a at a good company in Chicago, and I just didn't enjoy the work. And I had to you know leave. I had a job to come back to the consulting that I do, um, but there was still risk. There was financial risk. You know, we were in between client cycles, so we didn't have contracts. Fortunately, like content was starting to pick up, and I was like, "What if I run with this?" You know, what if I start to focus on this and dive in? What could I possibly do? And the upside has been way more than I had ever possibly dreamed of in terms of, um, you know, meeting incredible people like yourself, like learning new things, creating a, a business in this space. To me, it's, you know, if I didn't do those things and I and I was that person looking over uh, looking over me now, if I was that alternate Ken future, I would have been pretty pretty bummed that I didn't you know, make some yeah. of those decisions. Yeah. It's so hard to see that in the moment, but you just got to think, what does future, you know, future Avery, you know, what is, what is, what do they look like in the future? And, and what, what it's so hard because you, you doubt yourself, but you know, you could be Ken, who knows? You just got to take a chance, take a chance on yourself sometimes. Yeah. Well, one thing I do want to ask you about a little bit more is the the contracting side and how you develop some of these contracts. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are looking to get into that space or to build skills in that space. And something that you had had alluded to is that you know, you, someone paid you three hundred dollars to learn uh, or to like build this a D three JS application, and like that's super undervaluing your skill. But you still took it and you framed it as the ability to learn. Is that something that other people can can take away from? Is there a, a message kind of over over overlying that? I, I think for sure. I'm a huge fan of over delivering and maybe even doing providing value without being asked and doing so for free. Um, I I kind of left this out of my story, but when I was a freshman in in a college, I didn't have any technical experience, zero, none but I wanted to work in my field. I didn't want to like do fast food. I didn't want to work at the library. I wanted to like work as an engineer. And so I sent 20 cold emails to 20 professors asking if I could work in their lab. 
And one guy took a chance on me in the metallurgical engineering field. Um, And so I worked for free for three months part-time for this professor. And that gave me the experience to land the job at VaporSense, which was paid still in the lab, but I would never have gotten that job at VaporSense had it not been for working for free for three months. Um, and I, I've seen the same thing later in my data career. You know, I wouldn't be on this podcast probably if I didn't send you a, a clubhouse invite. Um, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have done, you know, started my own analytics firm if I didn't take the first jobs that paid, you know, pretty poorly. Like I had zero freelancing experience. Like why would anyone trust me? And so I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, building up your experience of fabricating your own experience. People often are like, oh, I don't have any experience. It's like, okay, well take, you know, do a job for free. Or like I did with, with that, that D3, I didn't have any D3 experience. Why would anyone hire me for D3? Well, cause I charge you $300 for it and it's, it's cheap and I did a good job. So like, yeah. I'm a big fan of delivering, you know, for, for cheap to get started, to fabricate your experience. Yeah. I mean, on the flip side of that, I mean, you did literally get paid to learn D3 in that case, right? Yes. If you were going to learn it anyway, and you you didn't have a project associated with it, like you would have done all of that work for free. And so $300 yes. is infinitely more than you, you would have gotten if you you did, you know, you were going to learn it anyway, and and you didn't go through that route. Uh, you know, there there is a lot of talk about, oh, you know, everyone should be paid for an internship or whatever that might be. But on the flip side, it's also this story about what value people can bring. A lot of the times someone completely fresh uh, without any work experience isn't really going to be providing much to a company, right? They might actually be detracting from the company's value, but it's good for a company to bring people in to teach them things, whatever it might be. It could be for goodwill, whatever it is. Um, I am still a believer and I've done it in the past is doing work, some work for free. If it can help you build your resume, if it can help you tell a story, I do a lot of the projects that I create just for myself, and I'm doing that for free. If it's yeah. about a cause that I care about, you know, why not also do that for free? I'm helping somebody. It, it makes me feel good. I mean, free in terms of financial assets, yes, but you're yes. getting value of a learning experience. You're getting value of work experience and credibility, yes. and you're building your network. And so, absolutely, I think companies should pay their interns if they're creating value. But from the individual perspective, from a learner perspective, like working for someone is better than not working for someone. And you probably could quantify how much that first uh, lab experience created for you. You know, you might never have, you might not have gotten an actual lab experience till three years later, like the end of your college career. And so if, if you put it that way, that experience was responsible for a good portion of your total future revenue. So it's 100% worth it. Yeah. And so it's an interesting thing to think about things. Again, I guess that's the theme of this episode of not thinking of things in dollars and cents necessarily, or trying to, to understand them in, in terms of options and, and, and futures and, and what opportunities these things open up for you. Um, yeah. That- I, one, one thing on that, um, I mean, right now I, I, I run my own analytics firm, right? But I'm at the same time, it was it was for my my capstone project of my master's, so it had a little bit of a dual purpose. But at the same time, I spent the last summer interning for the Utah Jazz for free. I, I know you and I both share a love for sports, right? Like Absolutely. I love sports and I love data, and so you know I've I tried to work for the Jazz my whole life. I'm from Utah. I love basketball. I applied like six times, and I never really 
I nearly never got in. And so finally at this last time with uh, my capstone project, I, I pitched them on LinkedIn. I was like, Hey, listen, I'm, I'm good at what I do. I'm good at data analysis. I'll work for you for free. I just want to like work for the jazz, you know? And so I, I ended up doing this internship with the jazz and, you know, what did I get paid? No, not at all. Um, but can I put that on my resume now? Yeah. Like if I ever, you know, get sick of running my own analytics firm and I, I you know, I want to go be, you know, an MBA analyst or data scientist, that, that is so good to have on my resume. So like you said, you don't get paid in dollars and cents necessarily, but having the opportunity to put that on your resume is, and network is so powerful, you know, and, and I got to go to two jazz games, like super, super lower bowl. It was awesome. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's also something that, that I've really enjoyed about my own work is working in sports is frankly, the pay in sports is never going to rival most other domains because there's such an, such an interest in it. But on the flip side, the experiences you get, and, you know, me being able to work directly with, with high level athletes, getting to talk to them, getting to, to provide value for these people. I mean, they're really incredible at their, at their domains and their sports, but they don't necessarily have the analytical chops, the, 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 the background and what I have that can create value for these people. And, you know, I've been a part of some pretty awesome teams. I've been in some pretty cool places that probably shouldn't have been. And, <laughs> you know, like that experience, whether it's helping someone or whether it's being in the room somewhere, being able to, to pick the brain of someone who you, you look up to in a specific domain, those are also positive externalities that come out of doing some work like this. So, you know, I, what I also love is that you you kept trying, you knew what you wanted, you identified an organization and you were able to get in the door in some way. And you were, ten, you were obviously tenacious going back six times. And uh, frankly, I, I would expect since you've already shown them something, you've interned for them, the odds that you work with them again, or you work with another sports team or whatever it might be, those go up exponentially too. You know, it's something it, I, I say this a lot about how I view content is that all of the stuff that I produce, like almost all of it is free, almost all of it's out there creating value. And I wouldn't have it any other way. But at the same time, all of those things are like little incremental probabilities that something in the world that I want to happen comes to me rather than me going to it. You know, yes. it's, it's the odds that someone within a domain I'm interested in that I've talked about sees a video and they reach out to me goes up. Or if I were to reach out to that person and they've seen a video of mine and from, are familiar with me, that goes up as well. I mean, we're unlocking these things that, again, from like a probability perspective makes sense. But from a human perspective, it's like, oh, you're just throwing this out in the void and, and whatever it might be. Uh, but I just love that idea that we can like start to shape these things or start to make um, the, the world come to us a little bit or improve our chances of navigating whatever career or life maze that we want by doing just these little incremental things over time. And, and that first job, that free work that you do in my mind, that's like a really impactful way to get started on that journey. Yeah, a hundred percent. And life's so much easier when people are coming to you versus you going to people. Um, like one thing I, I talk about to a lot of um, my students is that's what you want with jobs. You want jobs coming to you versus you going to jobs. You're so much more likely to get hired when people come to you. And so for instance, that's one reason um, why I post a lot on LinkedIn. I try to post every day on LinkedIn. The amount of jobs that like I got offered just from putting out little tidbits of you know my life and free content and my thoughts about data, 
I, I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's so it's yes. Every time I post nothing happens, but eventually something happens and they come to me and my life's so much better because they're coming to me versus me coming to them, you know? Yeah. I think there's some, some statistician who probably explained this better than, than I could, <laughs> where it's like a, a, like a probabilistic return rather than a discrete return. So like when we put something out, like, you know, you, you get a hit in a baseball game, you can measure if that brought in runs. Right. But like the idea of getting a hit in a baseball game doesn't generate runs in and of itself, but in a broader system, it like could generate a lot of runs if you're doing that every single time or you're doing that consistently or whatever it might be. Classic jumping to sports analogies. Yeah. This is um, like Moneyball for life right now. Right. Exactly, you're, yeah. You're uh, I, I like to think of it as a surface area. Like everyone needs luck in their life, you know? And some people are like, oh, they're so lucky. And I don't, I don't see it that way. I see it as they have like expanded their surface area of net for their luck. And so like luck happens not more often, but they're just able to capitalize it because they're kind of like their surface areas everywhere. Um, no, I like that. So I've always described it as organized serendipity. Yeah. Where it's like orchestrated serendipity. So I'm putting all these things out in the world that are giving me like very incremental bits of luck, right? And the more that I have out there, the higher the odds are that something that is in line with what I want happens. And, uh, you know, that I think that that can apply, be applied to any domain, uh, any, any part of, of, uh, of your life. I, even a stupid example like golf, right? Is if I practice and I hit the ball closer to the middle of the fairway on average, the probability <laughs> that it doesn't go into the, the trees or the hazard goes up because my yes. I'm, I'm raining it in or, or something along those lines. Uh, and we, we do have control over those things, just not uh, direct control. No. Yeah. I love it. I think that's so true. Incredible stuff. So something I want to ask you as we kind of wind down here is what's next, what are you working on? Um, and where can people get in contact with you? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn. That's, that's my domain. You know, Ken has YouTube. Avery's on LinkedIn. Um, that's right where, where I produce most of my content. So definitely connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, right now, I'm still working on doing my analytics firm. We take on projects. Um, I just hired someone. So hopefully that goes well, um, kind of expanding and, and scaling. Um, the other thing I'm working on is kind of just through this whole experience, you know, through breaking in kind of on my own through jobs and then taking a master's to kind of I don't know, cement my place in the data world. Um, I definitely feel like I've learned a lot about breaking into data science. And so one thing I've actually done is I've started an online course where I help people break into data science, um, basically talking about a lot of the stuff that we talked about today. You know, how do I break in with projects? How do I build an online portfolio? Um, another aspect I really enjoy is, we. I, I talked about this on LinkedIn and you actually commented, was living a data-driven life. So a lot of the projects we end up doing in the course are based on our data from our life, like our screen time or our health data, our fitness data, which is really fun. So that's that's launching on August 18th. And that's been a lot of my time just building videos and, and building awesome. out the content for the course. So it's it's been a lot of fun to build it. That's incredible. I mean, something that I really reinforce and I, I, I want to make sure I repeat this a lot is that I think every data science project should have a stakeholder in mind like someone you're creating this thing for. And it's totally fine if that stakeholder is yourself. 
right? If you're getting value out of your own sleep data or whatever it might be. I made a video, I think it was like three or four weeks ago, and it talks about how I track data in my own life, you know, how I use the sleep ring to track my sleep, how I use, um, you know, how I track my fitness, how I, how I eat, how I track what I do on a given day, and how I use that to make better informed decisions about my future. To me, those things, like, it's a natural reason to to collect and analyze these things because you can imp- make uh, tangible improvements in the way that you live. Uh, if you can do that for yourself, what could you do for other people at scale? That yes. blows the, the lid off of it, you know? And, and to me, that's incredibly powerful and exciting. Yeah. It's, it's so fun to do data on your real life. It's just like, yeah, it's like a whole new world of adding value because it, I like to say it kills three birds with, with one stone you're learning, right? So you're learning things. You're adding stuff to your portfolio, which makes you more attractive to employers and companies. And three, you're improving your life. So in my opinion, it's just like the best way to learn because you're you're multitasking. Three things, yeah. three birds, one stone. I would even say like four or five stones because in That's addition true. to that, you're working in a domain that you care about. Yeah. Right. You're going to be motivated to do that. I think one yes. of the problems with a lot of projects is it's like, oh, okay, I don't really care about this housing price data set. <laughs> right. Like penguins <laughs> are cool, but this is kind of boring for me. Um, and the idea that you're working, uh, like it, if you work on things that you care about or you're interested in, like people don't realize how interesting they are as individuals. Right. If you like, yeah. like anime or something, right why not build an anime recommendation system for, for yourself, sure. right? Or if you're really into golf, like I am, there's so many different options for building projection models or analyzing your own game or whatever it is. Anything that you're interested in, you probably could collect data on it 100%. and and make it even more of an exciting experience for yourself. Yes. And so like, why not, right? You get all those other benefits that you just described. Yeah. That I, I totally agree. And it, it makes you love those things more too. And makes you like, you're invested in them literally. Yeah. And, and, and you're so right that it's so easy to, to like get stuck and give up on your data science projects. But when you love that, the subject and you're excited about it, that's going to push you. It's such a good motivator. Yeah. Absolutely. Incredible stuff. Avery. you have any, any final thoughts, any last words of wisdom causes you care about anything like that? No, I mean, just do projects. That's my last advice to everyone. Do a project that they care about. You know, I, my dog, she's, I don't know if you can see her. She's like, she's somewhere behind me. Um, she, she has a Fitbit and I love looking at her fitness data on her Fitbit. So like I love it. Do, do projects and, and yeah, don't give up. That's another thing. And take risks. I don't know. Those are my last words of advice. Awesome. Thank you so much, Avery. I really appreciate the time today and um, look forward. I'm looking forward to the next time we chat. Yeah. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors. Many of you have been asking about how you can support the show, and we're extremely grateful for all the engagement so far. The best way that you can show your support is to subscribe to both the Ken's Nearest Neighbors and the Ken's Nearest Neighbors Clips YouTube channels. If you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Music, giving us a rating and sharing any of the episodes with someone that you believe might find the content useful is also greatly appreciated. The Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast is hosted by me, Ken G, produced by Bobby Hicks, and is edited by Mario Paul and Tony Pellariti.